Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Continuing our month of sequels, we decided to dive into a sequel that we haven't actually done the original for yet, surprisingly enough. Um, this one is Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, <laughs> uh, which came out in 1986. And after watching this film again for the first time in ages, I think I realized I remember more about this movie than I do the original. Yeah. We used to watch this all the time as kids. Uh, I think we had it on tape. Yet I have forgotten so much about it. Like, I knew I I had key scenes in my head, but as far as the whole plot and kind of how it all went down, um, that much um, was new to me again. For the fresh mm-hmm. for the first time. So it was fun to watch this a second time around. The original movie made a big splash. Uh, Toby Hooper directed it. Steven uh, Spielberg produced it. And there has always been some speculation that maybe Steven Spielberg did a little bit more than just producing it. He was on set a lot of the time. But we get a lot of conflicting stories about that. That's the original. Uh, the yeah. second one here uh, was directed by a guy named Brian Gibson. Uh, Brian Gibson um, is a British director, and before this, he really didn't do a whole lot. Um, he directed a bunch of videos for Sticks and shot a movie called Breaking Glass. So this was kind of his first big-time film. And then the uh, producers and writers of the original Poltergeist came back on to write the screenplay for this one as well. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Goldsmith came back on to do the score for this, mm-hmm. and he actually won an award for this the score. And uh, the score is great. I have to say, uh, it's a fantastic score. He did something a little bit different than he did um, for the original, but uh, oh, it it just turned out wonderful. In fact, the minute, you know, about five minutes into this movie, I was just thinking, God, this movie is like so Spielberg. Yeah. I mean, he had nothing to do with it, but the movie just feels like a Spielberg movie from the very beginning. It's like it was intentionally, you know, filmed that way. Yeah, and I think that some of that has to do with the score. You know, I talk about this a lot. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but I I talk about it with my partner and my friends and stuff. Like, you know, when we were growing up in the 80s, um, movies so often had these amazing orchestral scores. Now, to be fair, this one isn't as orchestral as the first movie was. He, He played more with... Uh, synthesizers and and electronic stuff, but um, there's still the very iconic Carol Ann's theme uh, that runs throughout this one, which is really familiar. Uh, and and you just don't get that much anymore, you know. Yeah. Like I just feel like filmmakers anymore just don't worry about or or think about score so much anymore. But it made such a big difference you know like you think about et and like you said steven spielberg movies but it wasn't just him lots of people were doing it um and the scores were so memorable that the moment you hear them it strikes a chord with you and and i think that that's why some of these movies or at least in part why some of these movies are so memorable to me at least yeah and you hear it and you instantly know you're in for a certain caliber of film and I don't know if it's just uh, a chicken and egg thing, you know, but it, you you also feel like, okay, this is going to be a PG family-friendly movie, you know, which this is. Uh, and the and the original Poltergeist was. I mean, considering the, it, it's, it's a horror film, it has some horror elements, but the horror element, nobody dies. Uh, it's not gory, you know, none of that stuff. So it is a movie you can watch with your family. In fact, I think this movie and Poltergeist were both rated PG at the time, but have subsequently gotten a PG-13 moniker because the at the time they were released, the PG-13 didn't exist yet. Yeah? Well, at least the first one. I mean, this one is PG-13, but I think that oh, you're... You're right. Uh, the the first one was PG and, sh- and surely would have been PG-13 had that rating been available, but it yeah. wasn't. Yeah. But but you're right. I mean, it's scary. I, I mean, I think it's I think both movies are scary movies, but you're right in, in both. It, you know, there there are three of them uh, in the original trilogy. I, I choose to ignore the remake. It was terrible. But um, in the original trilogy, there are there's only one violent death and all three and that's in the third one and even it is pretty uh tame so um yeah uh but but still uh <laughs> you know I, I i loved these movies when i was a kid but um you know maybe a little bit too scary for some kids but 
when it comes down to it, yeah, there's there's really not a whole lot of violence, uh, if any at all, really, and, and no violent deaths. And um, you, like you said, it, it's more just like kind of a haunted house kind of thing, a, a spooky kind of thing. Um, and, and there's imminent danger, but ultimately everybody's okay and <laughs> it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can't say I really enjoyed it that much watching it again as an adult. Uh, and maybe in this day and age, maybe in the 80s, it, it passed a little better than, than it does now. This is a movie I'd watch with my son and he'd probably really like it for sure, when he's old enough. (laughs) But um, as an adult, I felt this movie had a a lot of problems. More than anything, I felt like it was just a little too... I don't know. Like, the original had focus, right? The original had... It was basically a haunted house story. There are all these creepy things happening. It starts out with this poltergeist activity with things moving around, and it gets more and more intense in this family, and they don't know what's going on. They call in a psychic who comes and tells them that, you know, they're in danger and and that uh, their house is a a problem, Uh, and their girl disappears. She gets sucked into the other side, Right, and they enlist the help of this psychic to bring her back. And then at the end of it all, spoiler alert to anybody who hasn't seen Poltergeist, but at the end of it all, the big climax is this crazy scene just where the whole house seems to be coming apart and all the stuff is happening, and they find out that the house was built on an ancient Indian burial ground, which is why uh, these things have been happening. And so the second movie takes that idea of the Indian burial ground (laughs) just a little deeper. If I could say. Yeah, literally. (laughs) It turns out like the Freelings are the most, um, I don't know, like uh, the most unlucky family in the world. Not only was their house built in an ancient Indian burial ground, but underneath that (laughs) happens to be a cave where a whole other set of people came and and, uh, went into – Basically, the gist of it is that there was this preacher, kind of like a Mormon thing. It's it's shades well, of it was it was a doomsday cult. Doomsday is cult. what it was. Yeah. yeah, Mormon era, right? Sort of doomsday cult taking is taking this group of people way out west um, who is following this charismatic leader. Uh, we find out that his name uh, was a uh, was Cain, which is always a scary sounding name, a Cain, uh, and he basically tells these this group of people that the world's going to end. They follow him into this cave. They seal themselves up. When the world doesn't end, he forces them to stay down there and they all die. And so all of this is in a cave underneath the burial ground upon which their house was built. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little silly, but okay. (laughs) Right. But okay, whatever. I mean, they had to introduce some new element. So right. that's fine. And I actually find the character of Reverend Kane to be very scary. And oh, a lot of that has to do with uh, his portrayal. Um, this guy was a character uh, actor. Uh, his name was Julian Beck. And, and he did work as a kind of a character actor in, in theater and in film. And this was like kind of a rare big role for him and he's super creepy and sadly part of that is because he was dying of stomach cancer at the time and so he's got this really super gaunt look he's got these big eyes like i mean he almost he kind of looks like a human skeleton you know he's so gaunt um and he is super super creepy i think that part of the reason that this I, i agree with you that I much prefer the first movie. In fact, the first movie is probably one of my top five favorite movies, period. I Mm -hmm. love the first Poltergeist movie. It's great. But one of the things that I feel like they couldn't recapture is that the first third or so of Poltergeist is kind of this charming, cute story about a family. And, And initially... Um, when weird things start going on in their house, it's almost like it's fun, you know, like, like, oh my gosh, the chairs move, like, this is so cool, come see it, and like, look, I can sit something in this spot in the kitchen, and it will slide to this spot, and I can even sit our daughter, Carol Ann, in the spot, and she'll slide from one side of the kitchen to the other, and it's it's fun, like, it's not scary at first, and it's only when things start getting dangerous, then it becomes scary. Well, in this movie, they've already dealt with all of that, so... Yeah. 
as soon as things start happening, they know, you know, this isn't something to be messed with. So a little bit of that charm from the initial movie is removed. Uh, and, and I agree that this movie isn't as good. I still like it. In reading the uh, trivia about it, I was interested to see that the original cut was like two hours and 11 minutes or something like that. And they cut it down here to just an hour and a half. And I'm glad that they did, even though I think, even though I think that there are parts of it that seem a little bit disjointed and there are parts of it that feel a little bit rushed, especially the finale. Oh my gosh. Um, I can't imagine a two and a half hour version of this because Frankly, even though I felt like, you know, things were consistently happening, I was a little tiny, tiny bit bored. Yeah. Well, it I don't think it has a lot of build. It starts out slowish. There's an Indian. His name is Taylor, an American Indian uh, named Taylor. And he goes to this uh, the top of this craggy hill. I, I don't know how he got up there. But anyway, he yeah. has a, <laughs> sort of a spiritual qu- vision thing and gets imbued with the powers, I suppose, of a healer through a whole bunch of special effects and a flame and, and this kind of ritual ceremony on the middle of nowhere. Uh-huh. That comes into play later. We see him driving down a road. He's called by, I guess he's called by Zelda Rubenstein's character who was Tangina from the first movie, to the site of this house. Uh, this, I mean, this is really basically picking up where the first one left off. almost Pretty much. I, I think it's supposed to be a year or two later. Oh, really? Um, okay. I think so. But, yeah, I mean, he goes back to Cuesta Verde, which is where the original site was, and he goes back to the house, and that's, like you said, they go deep down in there, and he sees all of these remains of these people, like underneath the Indian burial ground. Like they don't just wipe that away. Like, no, it really was an Indian burial ground, but also (laughs) (laughs) this doomsday cult, you know, also all died right underneath your house. So now we're going to have to deal with that. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like all of this is just kind of a convenience thing. Like the writers are really grabbing at things to make a sequel for that is all going to tie in together. Because I'm just wondering why did they feel the need to dig further down and do further investigation here? Uh, You know, they find this cave and these people inside. And so he goes down, he checks it out. He senses an evil. um, uh, Tangina senses an evil too. And then we jump right over to the Freelands who are... Now, the Freelings, who are now um, at the grandmother's house. This is the mother of the mother. We get this, uh, I think we already kind of know it from the beginning, from the first movie, that uh, Carol Ann is a a bit special. She can sense Mm -hmm. things more than the others. And it turns out that her grandmother also has this gift, that she has this sort of psychic ability. And so she notices this while they're together uh, and is talking with uh, her mother, um, who is played by Geraldine Fitzgerald. Classic Hollywood, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they're, they're there at this house for a while, I guess a year. There's some moments where Carol Ann can sense some things. She can see colors. She's handing her yarn that she wants without looking at it. You know, she's got the right colors or whatnot. She's drawing mm-hmm. creepy pictures of faces that will come up later. It's pretty typical stuff. And then um, in a pretty interesting moment, the grandmother says goodnight to Carol, or Carol Ann goes in and says goodnight to the grandmother, kisses her on the cheek, and walks away. When she goes into the basement, the, the, her little toy telephone rings, and when she picks it up, she says, oh, hi, Grandma. Oh, don't worry. Everything's okay. All right. I love you, too. Bye-bye. Hangs up. And in the next morning, uh, we find out that Grandmother passed away uh, in the middle mm-hmm. of the night. And Carol Ann is, obviously was contacted from beyond the grave by her grandmother. So... You know, we have this little element going. Uh, But, you know, all of these scenes with the family are quite cute. Mm -hmm. Very sweet. The nice thing about this family is that they really do care about each other. There's none of this, like, tension, really nothing wrong here, Uh, which which is, I don't know, that's not actually what I remembered, you know? In this movie, I really remembered a breakdown of the father character played by Craig T. Nelson, uh, Stephen Mm -hmm. 
because at later point he's drinking tequila and stuff. And I think as a kid, I was just associating the drinking and the alcohol with him, you know, kind of wrestling with stuff. And I think right. the script is going in that direction by the middle of the, or to the end of the movie. But either due to the cuts that were made or just the way it's written or how fast the movie goes, I feel like that's almost, it's so downplayed as to be non-existent. Like we're told that he's having this emotional struggle, but we're not seeing a really deep emotional struggle here throughout the movie. I think it's not deep enough anyway to really resonate with me. I mean, to the end, at the, at the end of the day, he's still very much connected to his family, very much attached, seems very much um, in control. He might not be making all the right decisions, but he's still a decision maker making decisions through the movie. You know, he's not incapacitated. Right. Well, I have, you know, it- you talking about you know how the the family you, you can tell that there's a strong bond between them throughout that's true but that's really kind of like the point of the movie i mean like that's their strength Is like that they're that's, together that's true right that's true. and that they love each other and and that their their love can conquer all or whatever and and I, you do see that and and people emphasize that throughout like they they say that the evil's going to try to break you up they're going to try to turn you against one another but your strength is that you are together and that you love each other as a family and that's where they draw their strength now and and that was true in the first movie too i will say and i don't know if it's because of the writing or the direction or i i have no idea what it is but i felt like craig t nelson's performance in this movie was a little bit flat yeah. i i believe yeah. i believed him more in the first movie in this movie he feels kind of more like oh i'm the goofy dad <laughs> like <laughs> the whole time yeah yeah and and then he gets very sinister at the end when he kind of becomes well, spoiler alert again, but frankly, you know, literally possessed, really, yeah. at, at one point. And, and that's scary, but uh, beyond that, he's painted a little goofier in this movie than he was in the first, which I don't love. You know, it doesn't kill me, it doesn't take me out of it, but uh, it's, it's not great. Um, before the grandma dies, though, there's this great scene that I love. At, like, they're at a shopping center. The mom and, and the two kids. There were three kids in the original movie. Um, there was an older sister named Dana. And this gets down to, there's, we could probably do a whole episode about the poltergeist curse. Mm. But the, the oldest daughter from the first movie was murdered the actress who played her was murdered by her boyfriend shortly after filming the first movie. And so she doesn't appear in this movie. And apparently in a deleted scene, they explain that she was off at college. Really, like, you could just assume that, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> she she was old enough in the first movie, you would assume she was off at college or she had moved out or whatever. But anyway, so the mom is at a shopping center, like an outdoor shopping center with the two kids. This creepy guy, she, Carol Ann kind of gets separated from Robbie and the mom. And this creepy guy, this ghostly guy who Carol Ann sees people like walking through him, like he's clearly like an apparition, um, follows her around. And again, it's this Reverend Kane, and he's dressed in like period clothing, which apparently nobody finds to be odd. Uh, <laughs> and he he talks to her and he sings to her. Are you lost, sweetheart? Are you afraid, honey? Well, why don't you come with me? No. All right. I'll sing you a song. Till your mom comes back. God is in his holy town. Earthly thoughts be silent now. And so we know that this is basically the new villain who is um, pursuing her. And as it turns out, we're meant to believe that though he didn't appear in the first movie, he was part of the entity or the evil entity or was at least a witness to what happened in the original movie. And he needs Carol Ann to fulfill his purpose, to, to lead his people out of the earthly realm into the light. And so he's after her from the beginning. Again, I, I, I really can't say enough about how creepy Julian Beck's performance is. Like, oh, yeah. 
it, it's nightmarish. I mean, especially if you're a kid. I mean, you know, like, which is when I saw this, you know, he's the creepy guy that your parents warned you about. Don't talk to strangers, you know? Like, <laughs> like ugh. So oh, creepy. Oh yeah, yeah. If you 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 just see this guy, you wouldn't want to spend more than five minutes with him. He just he just his whole appearance, and then his performance is quite good too. He speaks very slowly and very deliberately. Whether it's just the way his face is, or whether it's very deliberate too, he really makes a point of opening his mouth a lot, showing his teeth, and um, uh-huh. just being very deliberate about what he says. It sounds it feel it sounds calculated, kind of like a cunning person. Um, yeah. But yet he's also trying to come across as a slow, deliberate kind of preacher character, which you know that's kind that's- of a character trait of some, you know, Southern Baptist or evangelical type preachers is sure. sort of slow. So, I mean, it, it all really fits well. It, it's played quite well. You know, I was looking up more about um, this actor, and I was so surprised to, to hear that he was a big pioneer um, in avant-garde theater, in the avant-garde theater world. I mean, he was born in like 1925, but he got together with a group of people, and they were doing something called the Living Theater, where they did these extremely um, experimental and controversial type theater performances. Eventually, they had to do it like in people's homes, uh, because they were getting arrested for stuff like indecent exposure and public nuisance, and they would do shows where... They would like, like go into the audience and do all this audience participation. Like, like um, apparently, also they were big um, anarchists, and they mm-hmm. were big on LSD and drug use. And so he would be high on LSD. Uh, they would all be tripping on LSD when they were doing their performances and stuff like that. Um, one time they were doing like a, a show about uh, drug users, and there were actors running, walking around amongst the audience, like yelling at audience members, trying to get them to give them money for their next fix. You know, uh, another wow. one like they wrote off like a list of social taboos, and one of them was public nudity, and they're doing this while they're taking their clothes off, which is one of the things that would get them arrested. Like this, mm-hmm. <laughs> this guy who's like in his sixties or so by the time this movie comes out and a short to die had a really interesting career <laughs> behind yeah. him but uh yeah you know i think that this character the thing that i think bothered me so much about this movie and i think you pointed to it about i think greg t nelson's uh acting sort of flat in this movie really contributed to it but the other aspect of it is is that it seems like the way that this kane character is trying to get into them is by driving a wedge between the dad and the family like trying yeah. to play on his supposed inadequacies and his feelings yes. like he can't be a man but i don't really see that you know he's being told about it well there's a there's a scene after the one you you mentioned and after the mother di- grandmother dies where this guy walks up to the house came and mm-hmm. it instantly starts raining which should be your first clue by the way it's like only mm-hmm. raining over the house <laughs> he walks up to the door and he's singing a hymn and he has a a dialogue with the family outside and he's trying to get into the house um, oh, just let me in, just let me in. Um, and, and then he starts talking about how, a uh, little bit more and more about how he knows what's going on with them. Um, at this point, they have already met, I, I skipped a bit, but they already met this Taylor guy, uh, which is big. Uh, I guess I should talk about that first, right? The Native American Indian Taylor shows up at their house uh, and tells them that they're in grave danger, and he's been sent by Tangina. Tangina to help. Well, and and this is after, I mean, we very early on in the movie, you know, right after the grandma dies, there's a big scene where big clouds come up over the house and the phone rings again, the the toy phone. But this time it's not grandma. It's somebody scary that Carol Ann talks to and like the whole house shakes and all this crazy stuff is happening. The toys all come to life and are walking around and... Just like before, basically. <laughs> right. Just like before, exactly. And, you know, the parents, it, it all happens very quickly, and the parents bust into the kids' room, and they find the kids, and Carol Ann turns and looks at them and says, they're back, just <laughs> like they're here from the first movie. You got to get the tagline back in there. <laughs> so at this point, at this point, they know that this crap is happening again, and and then that's when uh, Taylor shows up, 
Um, and Carol Ann likes him right away, but uh, Stephen, the dad, is very skeptical of him. And, and yeah, so. and he shows himself as the mystical Native American. You know, it's sort of this trope. And I think nowadays it feels a little weird. It does, but the funny thing is, he really was. <laughs> like, yeah, true. like, the actor who played him, this is the same guy, Will Sampson, who uh, played uh, the silent patient in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Chief, I think. But in real life, um, this guy was a shaman, like, for several different tribes. And once again, you know, I read this in the the trivia. They say... um, because later on there are scenes where there are skeletons and and corpses and cadavers and stuff and they said that uh, some of them were real because it was cheaper than getting the fake ones well that was true in the first movie too and they say you know the actors didn't know well you would think that the actors would at least be suspicious in the first movie joe beth williams was in a pool with all these skeletons that were real <laughs> and she didn't know it at the time but she found out later one would think that they might at least be suspicious the second <laughs> time around um but apparently not and 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 lots of weird stuff happened like they did a whole day of shooting with these real corpses and the the film all came out totally blank like just black and they had to go back and do hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of reshoots and so they thought that the set was possessed so will sampson who played taylor came in and did an exorcism of the set like Quit using real bodies, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I get that it's cheap. (laughs) Right. I get that it's cheaper, but man, (laughs) think about the other costs. It's just so weird. Like, what do you do? You walk into the Hollywood props closet and there's a door that says fake corpses and another door that says real corpses. And (laughs) hmm, I guess I'll take five of those and we're going to cut a little bit of money. I'll take three of those over there. I don't know. Okay. So- but I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. You know, it seems, you know, the the Native American spiritual guide or shaman or whatever, like it seems like a trope. And it does, and it was, but in this case, turns out he really was that guy. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they didn't need special effects for the moment where he's raised his hands in the air and all the butterflies are floating around him and they're odd. Right. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong. I mean, you should be able to do this, right? You should be able to do something like this as long as you're being respectful and you're not making fun of it or whatever. Of course, there's mysticism in Native American religions and all that. You should be able to have a shaman doing shamanistic things and wonder, just like you could have a magician doing crazy stuff or whatever. Or a priest or whatever. There's a billion of that, right? So no big deal, really. It just feels a little weird, and I think it feels especially weird because it's so super magical. Like with Jerry Goldsmith's score behind it, and they're looking yeah. out the window in just abject wonder with these like bright smiles on their faces. Again, it's like total Spielberg, and he's sitting there just staring up into the sky, and these butterflies are twirling around him. It's sort of like, oh, come on, you know? It's right, almost right. like a cartoon at that point. But anyway, okay. So we've got him. He's there. Um, Craig T. Nelson's character, the Stephen, the dad, is a little skeptical of him but not skeptical enough, apparently, to keep him from living in their backyard. So he's in a tent in their backyard. So long as he'll work on the car. Yeah, exactly. That's that's basically it. Because the car is angry. So so this is going on. Uh, And in the meantime, as I was talking about earlier, Kane comes walking up to the house, and he has this whole dialogue with them. There's an Indian living here with you. Taylor. So that's what he calls himself now. You are in danger. What do you mean? I'm with an organization whose concern is families like your own, families in crisis that are preyed upon by charlatans with fake magic and false solutions. Now, I don't expect you to believe me now. Let me come in and talk to you about it. 
And finally, the father sends the rest of the family inside, steps behind the screen glass, the, the screen door, closes it uh, so that he's got something between him and this guy. Uh, and it's just a really creepy scene dialogue that goes between them it's so and i i don't know if they filmed this on a different day if they intentionally did something different with his makeup or if it just looked different between the screen because as their conversation goes on kane seems to like look more and more gaunt and menacing just like physically did you get that feeling well he yes and you know all these special effects and things that happen throughout, like that's scary and exciting, but like, I feel like this is one of the creepiest scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of it is just that we as viewers, I I think that Steven, the character picks up on it eventually, but just the manipulation tactics of Mm. this guy, it's believable because you can believe that this would be a guy who would be able to manipulate a group of people into believing that it was in their best interest to go underground to endure the end of the world or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, that's just kind of a spooky thing. You know, ministers, spiritual leaders, they have to have a certain charisma or something in order to get people to listen to them and to believe them. Yeah, it's true. And some people, you know, can use that in bad ways. That's what it feels like here. Like he's saying, I'm here to help you. I want to help you. And, um, you know, this other guy who you're listening to is bad. Don't listen to him. And and he totally plays on Steven's insecurities about be, being able to protect his family, about being a good father, about being a man, right. questioning just, you know, his manhood and his masculinity. And, you know, can you protect your family? Can you lead your family? And it, it works. Like yeah. he's almost, and he's got this hypnotic thing going on, which you can see in the performance and, And I I think they do a good job here where you see that somehow Kane, he locks in eye contact with Steven. And when they're locked in, he kind of has this hypnotic power over him. And then I feel like Carol Ann says something off from, you know, the distance from back behind Steven and it diverts his attention away for just a second, but that's enough to break the spell. That's right. Oh, it's yeah. just, it's, I, I can't describe it well enough. It's just such a creepy, eerie scene. And this guy is spooky looking to look at anyway. And then to see this kind of magnetism and power that he has to manipulate, it's, it's really spooky. It's really good. <laughs> it is good. It's, it's a little like the vampire. Right. Uh huh. Um, uh-huh. In that kind of hypnosis, and also this insistence that he's got to get in the house. Like, I don't know about you, but what was going through my mind here was, oh, I see. Like, he has to be invited in. Uh huh. Like, uh-huh. in order to do it, and this is his tag. This is what he's doing, and so that's you know that's part of the tension here too. Is like, oh my god, don't let him in, or it's all over for you guys. You know. Right. But but that again, that's a bit of a letdown actually, because it turns out that's not the case at all. Right. In the context of the rest of the movie, after such a powerful scene, I felt like that scene didn't really amount to much for two reasons. One was that it felt like it was setting up this notion that they had some barrier of, you know, that if as long as he wasn't being brought into their home, they could somehow keep him at bay. It turns out it doesn't even matter. Like, he can reach them anywhere they are. Uh, and he even yeah. shows up as an apparition in their living room a little bit later, like as if it's yeah. nothing. So, There's that part that I was like, oh, that's a shame. Uh, But the second part is, this is the only place I could find in the film where we really is alluded to any sort of um, self-doubt or this notion that that Stephen is unable to provide for his family or has this this self-consciousness about him. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but anything up to this point, I really didn't see that. Uh, and even after this, so they're trying to play with it, but it doesn't really come through. And so it seems like just telling us instead of showing us a kind of lazy writing where he says, I'm peering into your mind and this is what I see. And Stephen's saying, oh my God, you're absolutely right. And now we're supposed to get that information. But it, it seems at odds with the rest of, of how the movie goes. I, uh, gosh, 
I don't like to be contrary, but I will disagree with you a little. That's a lie. I love to be contrary. The, yeah. the, <laughs> but I, I'll say I think that they did a better job than you're giving them credit for. Really? By by showing beyond this point. Now, maybe not up to this point. Okay. Um, except for, you know, like I can see how that would be something easy to play on where, you know, his business has failed. He's now, you know, he was a successful real estate developer. Now he's selling crappy vacuum cleaners door to door. Right. They have to live with his mother-in-law because he hasn't or can't provide them a home. But Uh, so there's so there's that leading up to it. And then after this, there's at least suggestion of his retreat into alcohol. You know, he's drinking pretty consistently from this point on. I don't know. I got the suggestion that this was kind of a defeated man, you know? I mean, I I see the suggestion, what you're talking about, but up until this point, even though, yeah, there are these things, he's still pretty confident about it. You know, he has that whole conversation with his wife where his wife is is more than him kind of saying, look, we're in a bad spot right now. We're living with my mom. And why are you selling vacuum cleaners? We need, you know, some stability or whatever. And he kind of starts to go into this goofy sort of play acting thing like, oh, you're right. Everything's going downhill. And she starts laughing at him and they embrace and they kiss and they love each other. And the kids come in and they all love each other. And it's all like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not like. I feel like he buys into that. I f- maybe he's not making the right choices. Maybe he's um, unsure of the choices he's made. I-, I don't know. I just don't get the sense that he's lost that self-confidence up until this point. And then later, as the film goes on, yeah, there's the alcoholism part, right? He's hitting the bottle a few times. But uh, I don't know. Aside from like two scenes, and maybe it's just because the movie's pretty rushed from this point on anyway. Aside from two scenes of him drinking, I mean, that's it. I mean, to me, that's kind of lazy. We don't see him stumbling around. We don't get the sense that it's inhibiting his ability to connect with people or that at the end of the day, you know, he's he's not functioning or he's, he's I, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I didn't get any of that. Maybe it's in deleted scenes or. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, an hour was cut, you know, who knows what we lost there. But even in the stuff that you're saying, you know, when they're talking about how the insurance isn't going to cover their lost home because it, since it just disappeared, it's only technically missing. Like that's so stupid, (laughs) but it's, it's, I know, but it sounds like something that an insurance company would do, you know, whatever. And they do, they have that discussion where they're talking about how they're on hard times or whatever. And he turns to humor, but I see that as a defense mechanism. You know, like, Mm. what else are we going to do but joke about it? You know, his retreat into alcohol, I I think, even though we don't see that much of it, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with having a few drinks to drown your sorrows. That's fine. Um, But I think that the suggestion is that he's maybe, well, diving in a little too deep. Well, I tell you what, if nursing one bottle of tequila over the course of a couple of movies (laughs) is diving in deep, I'd say he's he's at the shallow end right now, for sure. (laughs) That's true. Oh, man. Okay, well, Diane, the mom, then has a vision. I don't remember if it's inspired by anything. I, I think maybe Tangina. Yeah, Tangina gives her some pictures, some photographs um, of the cult. And uh, and she recognizes Kane, and she sees the underground bunker that we've already seen the corpses in. Um, and so we know that she is kind of special too, which Tangina says, she says, you know, Caroline is special. Your mom was special. And I bet anything that you are too. Uh, she says that Caroline's highly clairvoyant and Kane thinks that he needs her to lead them, uh, into the light. Uh, and then crazy stuff, uh, starts happening. Robbie, the son who, I don't know if this was a reshoot or not, but did you notice that in this braces scene that he looked like at least two years older than he looks in the rest of the movie? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I didn't notice that. You know, for me, I was I had it in my head that the braces scene happened to the girl in the first movie. So I'm to- I was totally off on this. On this gotcha. movie. <laughs> well, his his braces attack him, <laughs> and, and that sounds really stupid. That it's there's actually some really cool effects. You know, the the wires of the braces shoot out, and they, you know, it's a ridiculous amount of wire. It like ties him to the the ceiling of the bedroom and the parents come in are trying to help and they're yelling for taylor to come help but he doesn't because he's protecting carolan and when they finally get robbie out steven is mad why didn't you help us and he says because they don't want you they're just trying to distract you away from her they want carolan i don't know man there's gonna be a lot more stuff happening and this is kind of how i felt about the movie like why don't they just go after carolan then like why was uh, yeah. in her bathroom? Why didn't she just get sucked down the drain or something? Yeah, if they can do any of and, and all this stuff we're about to describe is just goes all over the place. It's like his yeah. his braces attacking him and stuff, and and not like that was that restrained in the first movie, but it just felt a little more grounded. And in this sense, because it's been hammered into our heads that they're trying to get Carol Ann, I'm trying to think, what is his method? It didn't ring true to this character who apparently has all of this control, can make all these spooky things happen, why he's having such a hard time pulling her away when he can do anything he wants to the rest of the family. I feel like I'm defending it too much, but... Until Robbie goes away to the bathroom to brush his teeth or whatever, they're always all together. Like, they're slumber partying. (laughs) Not literally. They're just all sleeping together in the living room. So they're all always together. I feel Mm. like by attacking Robbie when he goes off on his own, that's to try to get them away from her. And, and it works. It does get the parents away from her, but that's why Taylor stays because they're trying to get her alone so that they can, you know, and it all comes down to, you know, it it sounds so cliched, but it doesn't even bother me because, you know, I like that idea of a family's bond and a family's strength protecting them. Yeah. It sounds like a cliche and and very well, maybe, but it doesn't bother me. And so to have that idea of the only way to get to her is to get the rest of them away from her, that makes sense to me. All right. Um, I'll, I'll grant you that. I, I didn't really see it that way before, but now that we're talking about it, uh, it actually makes perfect sense. Well, so anyway, I don't know. They We get lots of exposition you know, about the doomsday culture or whatever, and then Taylor takes... Steven up to this impossible rock tower. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they cut out the scene in between there where they were like scaling it, you know, with, uh, they had their, their climbing gear. (laughs) I know it's funny. Like, I feel like two weeks in a row, we've watched movies where they've had to climb impossible mountains. Oh, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, at least in the last one, they actually climbed it. (laughs) You're right. Instead of just appearing at the top and like Steven with his like dad gut is just like sitting up there, like yucking it up. Like, what are we doing up here? <laughs> I, I loved his line actually. Uh, Cause they're in like a sweat box. We've heard about this cause there've been some accidents yeah. in regards to these sorts of things. But uh, you know, it's a, apparently a very traditional native American thing to yeah. put yourself in a, in a hut or something and then get all sweaty and then, I love the health club, you know. I'm just wondering when I get the key to my locker. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, the reaction is really cool. You know, he just smiles at me, says, ah, oh, sense of humor, uh, that you're going to need that. You know, it's not like he says, pay attention, you dick, you know. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's cool, no. actually. Yeah. Taylor, Taylor plays it very cool with Steve throughout the whole movie, and I like that. Like, he gets him. Like, he gets, this is the kind of guy you are. I get it. <laughs> I can work with that. He's totally, he's totally cool with them the whole time. But anyway, he blows some magic smoke in Steven's face, and that's important later. <laughs> <laughs> he gets sucked in to, to blow out later, yes. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But then, okay, so he tells him, you have to take your family back to Cuesta Verde, the original site, their, you know, their old house or whatever. He doesn't really explain why, but okay. 
Um, and then all of a sudden Taylor is gone, which I don't understand. Was there some sort of explanation for why he wasn't with them anymore? He just off the cuff said, uh, I've done all I can for you. You're on your own, basically, <laughs> which which is, is kind of another funny thing about this movie. I mean, I know you've got to do things to advance the plot and for our audience's purposes. But, you know, as soon as they find this pit underneath the Indian burial ground in their house, don't you think that Tangina could have at least like called them up first? Like, let them know, hey, I'm sending a guy your way. Um, I'm also going to be there shortly. Uh, they right. just leave them leave them out in limbo for a while. Send this mysterious Indian. Oh, by the way, Tangina sends me. He's there for like a week or two. And then Zelda shows up again. Like, how far away do they live? And then right. this time, he just up and leaves, like you said. And now you've got to fight it alone. But then when they get to Cuesta Verde, Tangina is right there. Like she's been camped out by that hole like for the last two weeks. So they end up by themselves, which leads to this, what I think is probably the most memorable scene of this movie. When the family is just all home together and like Diane is taking a bath with Tangina, which, by the way, I don't remember if she's it was... not taking a bath with Tangina. I'll tell you that. No, you're not. You're you're right. That would have been a, that would have been an interesting twist. Um, she's taking a bath with Carolan. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking ahead of myself. I was okay. trying to think it was coming next. But yeah, they, like they're taking bath, and I was good. I was trying to come up with the critics' names. Uh, I think it was Roger Ebert who hated this movie. Gene Siskel hated it. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Hated it. And uh, one of the reasons that he hated it was because he thought that Joe Beth Williams was trampy because she had appeared nude in movies before. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess technically she appears nude in this movie, too, because she's taking a bath with her daughter <laughs> and you only see her from the back. I can't think of anything trampier than taking a bath mm. with your daughter. <laughs> Right, <laughs> like you, you, you maybe see a tiny, tiny little bit of side boob. Like it's so tame. But anyway, regardless, Stephen is drinking. He's finishing off this bottle of tequila that he's been nursing the whole time, uh, and he drinks the worm, which oh. they they call it tequila so many times. I have never seen a tequila with a worm in it. Now mezcal has a worm in it. Um, and I've drank that, and that stuff will f*** you up. <laughs> that stuff will put a demon in you. <laughs> You've had some exorcisms yourself. <laughs> you yeah, I've been to Mexico. Um, but uh, but so he, he drinks the worm, which, which you do. I didn't have to be the one to do it, thank God. But he, he drinks the worm. And like, it's a possessed worm. Like you can, (laughs) like it starts moving around before he even drinks it. And then he drinks it. And then he's possessed by Cain. And if his acting has been flat through the rest of the movie, I thought Craig T. Nelson did a really good job here of channeling Julian Beck's character. Oh, he did. He gets very wide eyed and his, he made a point of, pulling his lips back over his teeth to really expose his teeth. And he, he talks like him and, and he's very sweaty and it's a really uncomfortable scene because he's, he first has a creepy, thank God, brief scene with Carol Ann that could have gotten very dark. um, But luckily it was very brief, but then he's with Diane and you know, these two, actors had really strong chemistry together. Yes. Like I really believed them as a husband and wife, 100% from the first movie to the second movie. And to now see Steven being so creepy with her and it starts off just really super handsy, but then it gets violent and rapey and it's, it's really intense and very uncomfortable and really scary. And I thought that they both did a really good job with it. This begs that question earlier, though. Why did he have such a brief little scene with Carol Ann? He, he possessed Carol Ann's dad. Carol Ann's right there. Can he just grab her and go? Why does he have to True. let her run off and then have this whole deal with her, her mother? I don't know. You just pop a huge boner or something like, well, wait a minute. I guess. But, you know, somebody had said either Taylor or Tangina had said – his goal is going to be to drive you apart. He has to drive you apart. 
And then not only is he being creepy and rapey with the wife, but he's intentionally very loudly saying, you never wanted Carolan. You don't love Carolan. You never wanted her. Yeah, you wish she hadn't been born. Right. And and the wife is trying to shush him and she's crying. And, you know, I don't know if there's supposed to be some more to the backstory there or whatever, but it's effective because we see that Carolan hears it and that it upsets her. And if their family bond is really what is protecting them and keeping them together, then he has done something by driving this wedge or planting this seed of doubt uh, between them. True. And then, um, (laughs) you know, as he's like trying to rape her, Diane says to Stephen, I love you. Don't you know that? I love you. And it's like Stephen gets control of his body back. Like he's fighting it and he fights it. And then he starts to retch and he vomits up what first looks like kind of a big scary worm, but what turns into a freaking demon <laughs> 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 that, that he expels out of his mouth. And it just looks awful. And and I read that the filming of it was awful because it took so long to do and they had to do so many reshoots and poor Craig T. Nelson just was in agony i guess but it looks amazing and then he vomits up this creature that goes scurrying along and it's this creature that looks so freaking cool and he's like he's kind of got kane's face like Mm. with the teeth and the eyes but very you know otherworldly reptilian he was played by this stuntman who was a Vietnam vet who had been a triple amputee. It just looks... It's hideous. I think if anybody remembers anything from this movie, this is the part that they will remember because it's yeah. just so unsettling. It's really cool. It's the PG-13 part of the movie, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. <laughs> it's gross, and it scurries away. And I guess H.R. Giger who designed mm-hmm. Alien and all that, did designs for this movie as well. The design for that creature that, I don't know if it was that particular version of the creature or if it's the creature that that then turns into in their stairwell, which is where they'd have a bit of a battle with it. Yeah, the beast is what it's referred to. Yeah, And he wasn't happy with um, with the way all that turned out. He said that right. uh, he it just showed him that he has to be on set for any of these movies that he advises or else it, it won't be done to his satisfaction. So, And I understand, I understand that. And I respect him so much as an artist. I've seen so much of his artwork, his sketches and stuff. And he, you know, I can't imagine what kind of dark mind his stuff comes from. It didn't look enough like a giant dick is probably what it is. <laughs> Maybe. Like. Maybe. But his his artwork really is amazing. I thought the creature looked good. But then, just like in the first movie, and I'm not complaining about this because I love the first movie, the house goes crazy. You know, they're fighting their way through all kinds of weird things going on in the house. They end up in the garage because Carolan has hit, has hidden in the car and they finally get in the car. There's a scene where uh, a chainsaw attacks the car. <laughs> they considered shooting the movie in 3d. And so this is one of the scenes that was supposed to pay service to that. It actually looks kind of goofy in the movie, but it sure does. It's kind of labored too, <laughs> but they get out and they have to go back to Cuesta Verde and, uh, they do. And they go down in, you know, under where their old house was back to the burial spot. Well, and, and Tangine is there waiting for them. Yes. And this is what I was yes. saying earlier. Like, <laughs> All this stuff's going on, and she's just hanging out by the hole waiting for them. To <laughs> like, she knows they're going to be there. <laughs> right. I knew you'd come. Like, it's about time. Jeez, did the house just attack you? Come on. <laughs> so they go down there. And then I can, you can tell. You can tell that they, in editing or wherever, that this was very rushed. Um, because they, they just get down there, and then from out of nowhere, there's like a big flash of light, and you hear Kane's voice and Diane and uh, Carol Ann get sucked into the void. 
And this is my biggest complaint with this movie is that the finale of this movie is just too reminiscent of the finale of the first movie. It's really the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that Carol Ann is off floating in space in the first movie, Carol Ann is off floating in space and they have to send Diane in to get her. And in this movie, Carol Ann and Diane are both floating off into space. So, and Taylor's there too. He's tending a spiritual fire down underground, apparently. They just turn around the corner and there he is. <laughs> right. And he's like, this is the entrance. Jump in. And so they do. So Robbie and, and Steven just jump into the fire. And then they're all just floating in space. And it's all very ethereal. Like, you know, it's 80s special effects. So it doesn't look particularly real. But it's pretty to look at, at least. And they're all just floating in space. And they get together <laughs> But then the big beast appears again, and somehow Taylor has this spear that we saw in like the first 30 seconds of the movie and then never again. And he throws it into the fire, and Steven gets it, and he throws it, and it kills the beast. Like the beast explodes, but the explosion causes Caroline to go flipping off into nothingness, and they can't see her. And Taylor's like, oh no, it's over. She's lost. But then. Thankfully, the angelic grandmother comes out of the light (laughs) with Carol Ann and reunites them all. And they all come back out of the fire and they're back and everything's okay. The end. And then there's some cute little comedy where Steven gives Taylor the car and then they realize they don't have a way to get home so they all go chasing him down the street and that's the end uh, it, it, the, the ending you know as as quickly as I just paraphrased it it's basically as quick as it is it's like it goes so fast yeah and it, it's it's a little bit of a letdown it's a little bit anticlimactic um, which is unfortunate it's unfortunate and it's a little cheesy too I mean the whole thing's a little hokey I mean I guess this universe is kind of like that. Like you said, it's very much like the first one, but this magical spear gets thrust in the spiritual realm, and then they just shows up where they are, and they toss it at the demon, and then it's dead. And then, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's a big letdown, honestly. It just, it just goes by so quickly, and it's too special effectsy for me. I don't know. Yeah. I felt like a lot of I agree. it was. And uh, yeah, it just it loses some of that magic. It, again, it, it doesn't ground it so much in reality. As much as a movie about poltergeists and the other side or whatever can be grounded in reality, you, you need hooks in there a little bit. And I felt like there was just so much going on throughout the movie that, you know, the braces thing attacking the kid the ghost appearing everywhere um this demon thing coming out of his him spitting out the the demon worm and all that that uh that's what i meant when i said earlier like it just kind of lacked a little bit of focus i think what i really meant was it just lacked a grounding in in a sense of like some rules that i could understand and play by you know mm-hmm. i think a lot of people mm-hmm. Their complaint about uh, fantasy in general is that, well, anything can happen, so how do I get invested in it when I know somebody's going to swoop in with a magic spell or a magic creature and, and, you know, deus ex machina something away? Mm -hmm. And I felt like this movie did that a lot. It was a spectacle to watch. It was well acted. You know, I liked the family, and I think I have gained a bit more appreciation for it, talking about it with you. Now that you had kind of explained to me that it's their whole family staying together that maybe uh, is what kind of kept them alive through all this. And it, it makes a little more sense that way. I get it. I get it. it. It's not a great movie. I don't know. I don't know if it's because of my love of the first movie. Like, seriously, I can't go on. I can't believe a hundred and who knows how many episodes we are in now. Plus, and we haven't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. And we haven't done Poltergeist. Seriously, it's one of my favorite movies. It, it's not as good, but it's it's not a terrible sequel. Have you seen part three? Oh, a long time ago when it first came out, I saw it once. <laughs> that was it. Part, part three is not even a good movie, but I love it. Like, Doesn't it take place in a skyscraper or something? Yes, it takes place in the Hancock building in Chicago and it's it's not a good movie but i absolutely love it i just i just have i think part of it is heather o'rourke carol ann 
she's just so sweet and cute and innocent and <laughs> oh god i just love her so much and then you know part three the tragedy again with the curse the tragedy of part three is that there are different stories some people say that they had finished production and then she died right after and then they went back in to film reshoots. There are other people that say that they hadn't finished and she died, but she died. This, this sweet, yeah. poor, cute little girl uh, died because she was misdiagnosed with some sort of stomach ailment. And it's just so sad. And she's just so sweet and cute in these movies. And I just love her. And, and really Craig T. Nelson, you know, he's still a very active working actor and Joe Beth Williams has done tons of stuff too. Um, but I just, there was, there's something natural about this family. Like I just believe them as a family and mm. I'm rooting for them. And I liked following their story. And I, I can't say that I didn't like this movie. I liked it. It has its problems. I still like it, especially as far as sequels go, because sequels are such a mixed bag. Mm. I think this was, a serviceable, if not better than that sequel. Well, when you talk about that, and we talked about this for the last couple sequels we've done as well, this movie does at least um, satisfy you in that almost all the main characters are back. Right. And, uh, you know, it's it's picking up kind of where the last movie left off, and it's tying in pretty strongly yeah. to the plot of the first film, um, even though it goes off kind of in its own way. Um, maybe even a little too much. Like you said, the ending is almost exactly the same. But uh, at yeah. least they've maybe done a better job of striking that balance of giving the fans enough of what they liked about the original while still trying to be original in and of itself. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed this one, please share it with a friend. Our month of sequels is wrapping up to a close. We have one more sequel for you coming up next week. Return of the living dead part two. So uh, look forward to that one. Neither of us have seen it before. We'll let you know our take on that. You let us know your take on this and uh, any other episode uh, that we've done by going to our website at twoguys.red40net.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Leave us a comment there on either of those places. Let us know what you thought of this film. Give us some requests for things uh, that you want to see in the future because we are going to do some more requests coming up here really soon. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Ah!